again, I've got to give credit to, to J.D. Shaw's, my former pastor uh, at a church I was in for years, for a lot of insight on this passage. So Matthew 2, 1 through 12, we're going to see, we're going to see the people's, uh, or various people's response to Jesus' coming. Okay, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went their own way, went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went from before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Um, and we thank you for the season of Advent. We pray again as we uh, focus on your coming and the response to the response that it begs. Um, I pray that you would help us to appreciate who you are, more deeply understand who we are, where, where we fall, and where you, uh, where you promise to deliver us. Um, and so, God, we, we thank you for this time, and we ask your blessing. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, I think we can see these responses to Jesus. I think they force us to ask questions about ourselves. Okay? In other words, these reactions that uh, the people in this story have to Jesus, in a way, help us see where we are. We can kind of judge by their reactions, our reactions. And so they're good tests for us to see how we know if we're truly following Christ. That's kind of the question. How do we know if we're truly following Christ? This, I'll confess, is a subject that I, I, I frankly struggle with. I've at various times in my life struggled with my own, uh, struggled with that question for my own self, like, am I truly saved? Um, you know, I've been worried about my salvation at various times throughout my, um, you know, when I would say I believed in Jesus. I, I've struggled with that question. I'm curious if you feel the same way. Does anybody else resonate with that? Maybe not now, but if I was actually want to see hands. Has anybody struggled with that question, whether or not I'm saved? Because if you didn't, then a lot of this would be... It was just on the assumption we all struggle with this. Okay, So um, I want to know why this is a difficult question. It's not rhetorical. I want to hear from you. Why have you struggled with this before? Why is this a difficult question um, to ask yourself? What are, you, what are your thoughts? I think it's because we like I don't have a, a clear view of what sanctification 
early stage that would be this process of getting better, right? right? And it seems to me like the older I get, it's not that case. Like mm-hmm. it's it's still struggling with sin. Yeah. Maybe different levels of it, but it's like, you know what I mean? Like that never goes away yeah. this side of heaven. And it's just that kind of, I don't know, wrong view. It's so would you say... Would you say that that's more, having been a believer now and and wrestling with that aspect of it for some time, would you say that that was more a symptom of your expectations? Like you just assumed you'd be further along? Or or do you think that's really, at the end of the day, just because you keep falling into sin or something like that? What do you think? Probably both. I Probably mean, I don't, I don't know. Like yeah. a friend of mine recently went out. I can't remember. I told you about whatever book it was. Um, Caroline, somebody had told me, they had recommended a book in a chapter and it talked about what the Christian life looks mm. like. And it was completely different. Mm. Even having been a Christian for, what, 20, mm-hmm. 20 some odd years. Like that view of what it really mm. looks like to struggle and wrestle with sin and that God's end goal is he's in the long game, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I expect things to change pretty quickly. Right. Like, he's looking yeah. at the story of redemption from beginning yeah. to end, and I think that's it. I bet, yeah, so I think it's both. That's good. So I, 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 that's exactly right. I think you're, I think it has a lot to do with, you know, you get, when you first come to Jesus, you just, man, I can't, I'm, I'm doing so good this month. I'm, like, learning so much scripture if I just multiply this time like five years, I can't imagine what I'm going to look like you know, five years from now. So your expectations are really high. So I think that's a huge part of it is, is we don't really, like you said, uh, understand what sanctification is until we, until we go through some stuff. So that's good. Anybody else? Not being able to remember a specific point or day uh, or time. That's good. And that was, you know, I've since come to learn that that's more common than I thought, mm-hmm. you know, that word that troubled me for that's good. a while. Anybody else? Oh, the stakes are really high. I have the first thing I said because the stakes are high. <laughs> like you said exactly yeah. the way I was going to say. That's right. Anything else? I mean, no, like eternity matters. <laughs> I think of it like no, one more thing though. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's like kind of like if somebody tells you I've got this great you know investment, like this great cr- like cryptocurrency or something. And they're like, you know, you could you could five times your money in three years. And you look into it and you know, yeah, there's some risk or whatever, but so you just put in like five dollars. Or let's say the same thing, same scenario, and instead of putting in five dollars, you know, you take out your whole life savings and you put everything on that cryptocurrency, right? I mean, in which scenario are you gonna be thinking about how that stock or, you know, Bitcoin or whatever's doing? You're going to be checking this because the stakes are so high. You could lose it all or you could gain it all, right? And I think that's exactly right. I think we don't. I think there are a lot of questions that we wrestle with, but we we wrestle with this one a lot because we're talking about heaven and hell, right? Exactly right. I think the stakes are high. Anything else? Good. Definitely think that's a part of it. I, I think. <coughs> Sorry, 
sorry. Come on. I think a wellness loan is like not having an understanding of what saving belief is mm. and that it doesn't have to mean that you never have questions for doubt. And mm. so like I put on a pedestal this idea of like what belief meant and that it was kind of just like, you know, certainty with like no room mm -hmm. for questions or like mystery or doubt and like I just now I don't believe that is right. what saving faith is. Right. Probably because at one point, you know, especially when you first became a believer, I mean, I, I remember for me feeling like so certain. And then there's different parts of your life where doubt creeps in. So I think I think that beginning where everything was so certain to you kind of fed into the expectation that nothing's going to shake me, and then you get shaken, mm -hmm. and so that shakes. You. And <laughs> nobody explains that to children. Like none yeah, of yeah. none of this was ever explained to me when I was yeah. eight or That's ten. Good. So you really don't have an expectation of oh, adults wrestle with this, you know, mm -hmm. like you're going to wrestle with this. Yeah, and I think when we read the Bible, the second thing, and there's been like five great things that have been said. The second thing that I've got here is uh, there's tension in the Bible when it talks about the subject. Like there are the passages where Jesus, where like Paul says in Ephesians 1, that the Spirit has been given to you as a deposit guarantee. Like, you can, if you have the Spirit and you've experienced the Spirit, you can know that you're going to be saved and that God's going to keep you. And then Jesus says things like, all that the Father has given me, I won't lose one of them. And so G you, you can know that, so, so you have all these passages in Scripture about perseverance and, you know, the, the kind of once saved, always saved stuff. We have that, but then we also have this, where Jesus says in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart away from me, you evildoers. Right? So we've got Jesus over here talking about your, like, have confidence, perseverance, assurance, all that good stuff. And then we've got these passages that give us a, get a bit of like anxiety, if we're honest. Right? So there's tension. And I think that tension's not, I don't think that tension's bad. I think that's a good tension we should feel and wrestle with. But it's there. Um, the other thing is, I think it has a lot to do with how we're raised, which is kind of what y'all are talking about. So there are unfortunately so many churches that live on the extremes. There are the churches that live in the extreme of like the Santa Claus Jesus, which is, you know, you bet he's checking that list every day. So how'd you do? You're naughty or nice, right? If it's if you're if you're nice, it's gonna go well for you. So that breeds this sort of like legalism. And then there's there's churches that live on the other extreme, which is, oh, you walked the aisle when you were six, you're good, right? I think there's, uh, well, any really if any theological discussion, it's rarely ever the extremes, um, but it's certainly in this case not the extremes. I mean, there's an element. Like I've just said, there's tension there, but I think the way that we were raised, maybe some of us were, were raised in these churches that lean towards one side or the other, and then so you get older, and then you, you know, you realize it. Like we're talking about expectations, you realize it wasn't that way. So there's a lot of reasons. 
There's a lot of reasons we wrestle with this question. My next question to you is this. How do we, how do we wrestle with those questions? Like when you, when you do question, you know, whether or not you're saved, how do you do that? Thoughts? Um, in other words, do you just say, this is silly, I'm going to dismiss this? Or do you panic and for the 300th day in a row pray to receive Christ? <laughs> you know, Both? and go get baptized again, right? Depending on the day. Yeah. <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? Uh, what, so maybe that's how you handle it. How should we handle it? Maybe that's a better question. How should we handle it? I don't think, it's, I don't think we should dismiss it. I don't think we should accept Christ again for the 12th time and go get baptized, you know, for the fifth time. So it's, so that's what not to do. What to do is kind of harder. How to handle it is kind of the more difficult thing. But I think passages like this help us. I think it's helpful to ask ourselves these questions and just pray a lot. That's probably the best advice I can give is just pray a lot. But let's see, non, um, as we're, we're already behind time, let's see a couple things we can hand, uh, that we can see from this passage. Two things. You can know you're following Jesus that we, uh, that we see in this passage if you, number one, are hated. Okay? You can know you're following Jesus if you're hated. So it's kind of a dark first point. You know, I know you, you will be hated if you follow Jesus. Merry Christmas. Uh, but where do we see that in the text? Like, where is that? Let's look at Herod first. Um, by all accounts, very successful king. Uh, he was known as Herod the Great. You know, you don't just get that title for being um, an average king. He's responsible for many advancements uh, in the infrastructure of the region, uh, building projects. He oversaw a great period of peace in the region, which is no small feat for that part of the world. Um, you know, even today you can see that. Uh, he was a good politician. He wasn't Roman or Jewish. So he, uh, in some ways, that was helpful for him. He was able to handle both populations. They both gave, that was an issue at, at times, but he was able to navigate those. He wasn't, uh, he was appointed by the Roman governors to rule. Uh, ruled for a long time, into his 70s, something like 30, 40 years. Um, so those are the good things. Of course, we more know him for the bad things. Uh, he was ruthless. He had family members killed, other political opponents that threatened his throne, uh, even uh, a wife and two kids, two sons. He had killed um, anybody that posed a threat to his rule, even infants, you know, as you, as you well know. Maybe even hundreds uh, or thousands of people he put to death because of their uh, threats. And he also knew the Jewish prophecies well. He wasn't an idiot. He's ruling in this place. He wasn't a J Jewish person. Uh, but he knew the prophecies well. Um, he knew that, that the Jewish people and the, the religious leaders were expecting a Messiah. And at that time, what were they thinking? They were thinking that there was going to be a person in the line of David who was going to come and rule and drive out the Roman oppressors, which is bad news for Herod, right? So he's already a little angsty, thinking about all these things. He's already just personalities, already killed a bunch of people. So this is who, uh, this is who he is when the wise men come and sort of blow Jesus' cover. I don't know if you saw that in the first part 
of the story, right? They're like, hey, we heard about this. The, the Messiah was born. And he's like, oh, really? You know, where, where, is he, where was he born? Um, and so just as, as soon as Jesus is born, he has enemies that are really ready to kill him. And so Jesus has enemies, and you should know that if you follow Jesus, you're going to have enemies too. Jesus said in John 15, 19, probably most famously, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Okay? Jesus doesn't say the world might hate you if you follow me. Jesus says, I chose you. That's why the world hates you. And so here's the question. Um, does the world hate you? What do you think of when you think of the world hating you? So I bring this topic up. I talk about the world hates you. Does the world hate you? I want to know whether it was right or wrong. I want to know what the first image in your mind was of like an example of somebody hating you. Okay, there's one. How every TV program makes Christians look stupid yeah. or um, like a cult. Yeah, yeah. Individually, individually, I want to think more about this. Like personally, the world hating you. Like you think of an example like that. I, I think it's hard because the image that we immediately get when we think of this is like, you know, if let's say you owned a business or something and somebody found out you were a Christian. And so then the, the, the news outlets all come around your house or your, your, your place of work, and you step outside, and there's like 100 people with cell phones and video cameras, and they say, sir, are you a Christian? And you know if you give the answer yes, that your business is going to go down and uh, you're going to lose everything. You know, and you say yes, and then the world, you know, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. If that's the only image of the world hating you, right, that's the, that's the image that, that, that I first think of when I think of this question, right? I don't know if you're, uh, you're like, uh, like me. But this is tricky, isn't it? Okay? There's an obvious issue here. When I say that one way you can test whether or not you have saving faith is if the world hates you. How could that go wrong? If you present yourself in a way that wouldn't be how Jesus would have presented himself. So, like, if you're going, like, if you're saying it to maybe cause conflict yeah. or Right. So if, if you're told that the, that the world should hate you, if you're a Christian, <laughs> maybe one way this could go wrong is if you go out and try to make the world hate you, right? Yeah. Like this, like the Westboro Baptist mindset. I'm just going to go be an obnoxious jerk, protest at the, at the military person's funeral, you know, because they fought for a country that approves homosexuality, so that person's going to go in hell, and I'm going to shout that so his family members can hear it. That's a true story. Right, like that's Jesus didn't say, "Blessed are those who are persecuted for obnoxiousness' sake." Mm -hmm. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's a totally different thing. So that's one way you can go wrong. You can go try to be a jerk and make people hate you, and that's not what we're talking about. There's another way this could go wrong too, which is to say that you could wrongly apply this to yourself. You could just assume that because nobody likes you, that you're doing the right thing, and that might not always be the case. I mean, we know, I think we know, I think all of us probably know at least one person like this. They've had four jobs in the last three years, 
and they can't get along with any of their coworkers because they're always the problem, and they just keep moving on to the next place and the next place and the next. We all, and maybe it's not your coworkers, right? Maybe it's not your family members. They're like everyone of your family, and it's just oh well, I'm just doing the right thing, and that's why they all. Maybe not. So you could just wrongly apply this to yourself and assume because you know everybody hates you that you're you're doing the right thing. And I don't think that's at all how we should take this. Not yeah. to be like. Yes. I mean, don't you think it depends on what your definition of the world is? Because the other way it could go wrong is that there are things about a Christian that are going to be, like, beloved by yeah, people in the world. Of course. And so that's like, you yeah. know, kind of the opposite of what you're saying about the Westboro Baptist things. There are things yeah. that are going to be, like, warm and endearing and are going to attract people. That's right. And so... To me, when I like read the world, I think about like the things of this world and like other passages that kind of categorize like what those things are, if that makes sense. Yes. And those are the things that should kind of be repelled, like you know, the opposite yeah. of a magnet. What you're saying is exactly right. I mean, it's not the case that everybody who's not a believer should hate you. Like that's not what this means, especially in our context. Maybe in the first century, second century, third century, when. <laughs> Uh, people were, you know, literally being crucified for their for their beliefs. Uh, but today, that's just not what we see. I mean, today it's still like, at least for one party, it's still a good thing if you tell people like you're going to get more votes if you tell people you're a Christian. So the world's gonna, in a sense, like love you more in that way. It's, you know, um, for a lot of businesses, it's pretty lucrative. To have um, you know your bread being sold and put like a Bible verse on the cover of your bread, the Ezekiel bread, you know, or the uh, In and Out, put the little Bible verse, Bible verse under your cup. Um, Forever twenty one. Forever is that yeah. seriously? They have a Bible verse on the bottom of their bag. Yeah, I think John three sixteen. Uh, yeah, what? what? I should have known Fun that. <laughs> should have known Forever twenty one. I know, obviously, very. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, or sports people who yeah uh-huh. yeah that's right any or anybody accepting an award people people a lot of time oftentimes still you know praise God for for those things so it, it's not going to look like immediately how we think of when we think uh, the world's going to hate you and I think that's really Carol I think you're exactly right there's going to be things that are I mean G- Jesus says pre- present yourself as a, a, a pleasing aroma which means people you want to be attractive in a sense. It's going to draw people to Christ. But there is another sense in which people are going to hate you. I mean, Jesus didn't just say that. I mean, like, and not mean it. <laughs> so what does he mean? This isn't one we can just dismiss. So again, this is one of those things where we're saying, this is what it's not, so then what is it? How, how are ways that you can see uh, the world might reject you and hate you? What do you, what do you think? Well, with new people I've been introduced to, you know, through my girlfriend, like, she has some friends that are a part of the LGBTQ community, yeah. and, uh, you know, she warned them, she's like, yeah, he, I mean, he's very deep in his faith, and I always sense, right when I first met them, that they were kind of on guard, like, yeah. what's this guy about to say, and yeah. then I kind of was able to show them that I wasn't there to judge. Yeah, it's good. You know, I think a helpful way to think about this is uh, maybe maybe I've heard this uh, this quote before. Where is it? Uh, anger isn't the opposite of love. 
hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. Any truth to that? What do you think of when I say, like, does that make sense? Final form of hate is indifference. Like, what's the coldest thing you can do to someone? It's not so much that you offend them. It's like, it's because if you offend them and you come and say you're sorry, it takes this thing away. But if you offend them and you just don't care, I mean, that's a deeper level of pain. Yeah, I know I hurt you, but I don't give a rip about you or your feelings. Um, is that, am I, are we, are, are we on the same page there? I think that's, I think that's really true. Um, you'll know the world hates you when the world doesn't care what you care about most deeply, which is what? Right? And so maybe, you, maybe you've been in these situations before socially or with your family or whatever where uh, you're talking about the most important thing. You know, you've got this great faith, but it's dismissed by your family. Um, do you have people in your life who aren't believers? You know, as soon as you start talking about Jesus or you talk about your church, you talk about your faith, you talk about, you know, how your kids are doing in their faith, you talk about the most important thing in your life, and they just look at you like you're from another planet. And it's because you are. Philippians 3, their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. You know, as soon as you bring something up that has to do with anything, with, with life or something eternal, they just want to deflect and all they want to talk about is sports and clothes or whatever. It's kind of awkward to be around them because they're indifferent about the thing that you care about most. And so that's one way. They're bored by Jesus. They're indifferent. They hate him. And because you love them, because you love him, they wind up hating you too or being indifferent towards you as well. They just don't care. When you care for nothing, uh, for what someone else cares most about, that's hatred. And that's going to happen when you follow Jesus. So that's just one way that we see. Uh, second thing, you know you're following Jesus if you worship him. Okay? This is the uh, Magi's response. So Herod's response is hatred. The, the Magi, the wise men's response is worship. Matthew is the only gospel uh, writer to mention the wise men. And I'll just say a couple things to ruin your day. I'm sure Randy has pointed this out before. There's so much we don't know about the wise men. It never, it never. For example, it never says three were there. Um, but all of your nativity scenes have three wise men in them. We three kings. They weren't kings either. But all the all the like we got a nativity scene out there. There's three wise men. There's no reason to think there were three. There's probably there's almost certainly more. There were three gifts. Doesn't mean there were three people. Um, so I think maybe that's where we got it. Uh, also, almost certainly, they arrived months after the birth of Jesus, maybe years. Um, if you read the text carefully, they ask about the child who was born king of the Jews. He's already been born. Where is he? Well, we want to go see him. So then they make the long journey to go see him. So all of your nativity scenes are wrong. Um, the wise men were not there at the birth of Jesus. And uh, you need to fix this. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you can just put them off in the corner on we, the journey. Yeah. <laughs> I don't hide them. I just like they're... Some people have traveling. like, you know, hide the elf or the king king, <laughs> But I hide the wise men. Because we're going to be historically accurate. Um, Do you bring them out in July? Oh, they made it. They, they made it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're just giving me good ideas. <laughs> you're just giving me good ideas. <laughs> um, 
But none of that's really obviously important. The response to Jesus is what's important. They worship. And you might think, okay, great. Well, I just did that like 40 minutes ago. You know, uh, I come on Sundays. But of course, that's only one form of worship. And that is a very important form of worship. But it's entirely possible that we can be in a worship service without worshiping Jesus. Uh, Paul also says to the church at Corinth in verse uh, 31 of chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. All of life, not just what we do on Sunday morning, is worship. So how can we know we're worshiping God? Well, uh, looking at the wise men, particularly at their gifts. I'm not going to go through the whole spiel and detail them. You all have heard it before. Uh, frankincense, myrrh, gold, they're all very valuable. Extremely valuable and that's the point. They brought their be- their best to a child, to a very young child that can't really use gold at the moment. Frankincense, he's probably not super interested in, you know, perfume or whatever. So, but they brought their best to uh, Jesus. And so, what are you giving your best to? Is that what we're doing? And th- and all you have to do to answer that question is follow your time your energy, your resources, and see where that leads you. Because that's what you worship. Are you pouring everything into your career, your body, your hobbies? To what or to whom are you giving your best to? And you may say, well, of course, you know, I'm not that vain. I'm not going to pour everything into my body or my clothes or the way I present myself or my house. I give, I devote myself fully to my family. You know, I devote myself fully to others. And I would just say, be careful there. And, and really see if that's true. It's very easy for me, at least, to you know, like come home from. Uh, ministry may not seem that demanding, but there are a lot of times where it is. I mean, especially when when you're when you're going through difficult things with people, and so you've had these these meetings, and I'm very. It's very easy for me to get to get drained, and then to write these messages and to study this thing, and then I've got to come home and I've got to. Um, you know, do the dishes and then put the lights on the house up, and then and then it's easy to sit down on the chair and feel like I earned this 30 minutes to scroll through social media, like I earned this time while everybody else is running around the house. Um, it's really tempting for me to do that. There's a really um, there's a really good illustration. It's not a real story. This doesn't really happen. But Elizabeth Elliot tells a story about Jesus and Peter uh, to help us kind of understand something like this. Uh, Jesus went to the disciples one morning and said, pick up a stone and follow me. So Peter picks up a pebble, just a little rock that he could carry without effort, and he follows Jesus. And after a few hours of walking, Jesus stops and uh, tells the disciples to take out their stones and he turns them all into bread and says, enjoy your lunch. So Peter's got this like little Lord's Supper wafer, and uh, he's disappointed. And after they eat, Jesus says to the disciples, pick up a stone and follow me. So Peter thinks he's got to figure out. He finds a, a massive rock, somehow manages to hoist it up on his shoulders, and he carries it while he follows Jesus, and it's just killing Peter. But he's thinking about how good this supper's you know, going to take uh, taste. Finally, after several hours, Jesus calls a uh, halt beside a stream, and he tells his disciples, throw your stones into the water. And Peter looks at Jesus as if to say, why? And Jesus says to Peter, before he can say a word, 
he says, Peter, who were you carrying the stone for? And like I said, I find myself guilty of this all the time. You know, I'm doing this for everybody else. I'm doing these things for these people. Um, when in reality, I'm really doing it for myself. It's really, I think for career, especially for men, I have these conversations all the time. It's really easy to bury yourself in your work, not because you're trying to provide for your family, but it can be kind of an escape from those things. Um, I'm sorry, I don't have a direct application for women, but think of it for yourself. <laughs> but I know that's really easy for us to do. Um, and so who are you doing it for? Uh, it's not easy. This isn't easy to bring your best to the Lord. Uh, it wasn't easy for Abraham. I think this is one of the best examples we see in Scripture. When he was told to go up on the mountain and sacrifice his son, you know you're going to be giving the Lord your best when it feels like you're laying down the most precious thing on, your, on the altar and killing it. Right. And I want to be clear uh, anytime I bring up this story. You know, God's not going to command you like he gave that command to Abraham. That was a one-time event. It's never going to be repeated. If you hear a voice telling you to kill your son or daughter or anybody for that matter, that is not God's voice. That's schizophrenia, okay? may even be like demon, demon possession or something, but it's certainly not God. But there may be a time in your life when you've been making something your idol and God's going to demand that thing from you. Um, and so... Here's like the practical application. Like work now to not make that thing your idol because it's going to really hurt when he calls it. Um, it's going to really hurt when he takes it from you. It's going to be better for you in the long run, but it's going to hurt. So work now to rid yourself of your idols and give everything you can to Jesus. And how do you do that? This is where we'll all close. How do we do that? How can we worship God? How can we give him our best? And the answer is, of course, because God has given his best to you. Jesus is the truer and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount. He was truly sacrificed for us all. While God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you didn't withhold your son. Now we look at the foot of the cross and we can come to Jesus and say, God, now we know that you love me because you did not withhold your only son whom you love from me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So you can give your precious things to God because he's given his precious son to you. And when you see that, when you see what the wise men saw, when you see um, who Jesus is, it's going to cause you to worship. And then you'll know you're following Jesus. Amen? All right, let's pray um, together. Father, uh, we, we praise you for Christmas, for Advent. We ask, Lord, that you help us now. As we seek to follow you, I pray that we don't seek to follow you by, uh, by being jerks to other people, but I do hope and pray that when we experience hatred from the world that you'd give us strength to continue to, to persevere, and I pray that we would give you our best now, that, uh, that we'd love you and serve you because you're worthy, and it's in your name we pray, amen.